Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We have, uh, we're, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts at some point, um, but it's just not going to be today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, if you will, and uh, I'm, I'm only going to preach two verses this morning, verses 9 and 10. Some of you are excited about that. Uh, you're watching your watch. I've got a big red clock backed up there on the wall, so uh, I've kind of got my eye on it too. We're, we'll be okay. Um, <clears throat> but the title of my sermon this morning is The Collapse of Cultural Christianity. And I'm going to define that, so don't panic. Um, but the, the Collapse of Cultural Christianity. We'll read the text together in just a few minutes. In, uh, in the year 313 A.D., something happened, um, whether you know it or not, or maybe it's stored back in the recesses of your mind from history class, something happened in 313 A.D. that dramatically changed our world for how we live uh, today. The Roman Emperor Constantine issued what is called the Edict of Milan. You say, well, I remember that vaguely, somebody writing that on a chalkboard somewhere, but I don't exactly know what that means. What is the Edict of Milan? The Edict of Milan was a law which essentially made it legal to practice any spiritual belief that you wanted in the Roman Empire at that time. So this is really good news for Christians because obviously Christians have been facing persecution for the last 250 years or so for their faith. They couldn't practice their Christian faith openly. Uh, you know, they'd have to do things like when they, um, when they greeted someone, they had special uh, signals. You know, today, if you can't watch a college basketball game or an NBA game or an NFL game or anything where grown men are playing games, really. You can't watch any of that without seeing secret handshakes. You know what I mean? All these guys that score a basket and then they take 10 minutes to do all this stuff and, you know, Whatever, you know, I know I'm kind of mixing baseball and basketball, but, um, but Christians, when they met each other, they had secret, uh, they had secret greetings they had to give um, because they weren't allowed to practice their faith openly. And so Constantine comes along, and, and many people think it was a political maneuver that he wasn't actually fully invested spiritually in the Christian faith, um, but it happened to be a good thing for him. But he did pass this uh, or issue this law, this edict, that made it legal to be a Christian for the first time in the ancient world. And then 60 years later, something else comes along that happens uh, that was, I guess you could say, better uh, in some ways. But the Emperor Theodosius comes along and issues another law, uh, which in essence took it a step further. It mandated that every member of the Roman Empire be required to practice the Christian religion. Now notice I didn't say believe in the Christian God or believe in the Christian faith or spiritually identify as a Christian, but you had to practice the Christian uh, religion. You were forced to do that. In other words, it was now illegal not to practice the Christian religion. Now you could keep up your pagan stuff on the side, you know, your charms and necklaces and, and whatever you had. You could keep that going on the side. Uh, but you had to practice the Christian religion in the Roman Empire in the mid-300s or so. So these public endorsements of Christianity come along, and they essentially help to make Christianity the dominant religious force on the cultural landscape. Now that's about a two-minute uh, squishing together of 17 years of Christian history. But basically, that is in a nutshell how cultural Christianity was born and came to be raised. It was legal to become a Christian, and then it was illegal not to say that you were a Christian. And then Christianity was just, you know, welcome all across the Roman Empire. And so if we fast forward 1,700 years, um, we're, we're living in a totally different uh, time frame. 
Um, some of you will remember the clip that we're about to watch, uh, but Chip, hit that clip for me. Watch this. Consider, consider how we live our lives today. Everything is run, run, run. We bolt our breakfast, we scan the headlines, we race to the office. The full schedule and the split second, these are our gauges of success. We drive ourselves from morn to night. We have forgotten the meaning of the word relaxation. What has become of the old-fashioned ways the simple pleasures of the past. Who can forget, for example, the old-fashioned band concert at twilight on the village green? The joy, the serenity of just sitting and listening. This is lost to us. And this we should strive to recapture. A simple, innocent pleasure. And so I say to you, dear friends, relax, slow down, take it easy, watch your hurry. <laughs> what indeed, friends, is your hurry? Lovely service, Dr. Tucker, just lovely. And the sermon was magnificent. <laughs> Simply magnificent. Well, thank you. Dr. Breen, may I introduce Sheriff Taylor? Dr. Breen. His aunt, Miss B. Miss Johnson. Uh -huh. And Miss Deputy Fife. <laughs> well, hello. Real pleasure. Oh, Dr. Breen, your sermon had such a wonderful lesson for us. Yes, sir, you really hit the nail right on the head there. Yes, sir, that's one subject you just can't talk enough about. Sin. <laughs> yes, uh, well, um... You feel right? I love that clip, and I've made it a personal ambition to slip the Andy Griffith show into a sermon any time that, uh, that I can. Uh, but I don't know how much you know about that little church. Wikipedia actually has an article. I think it's called Wikia or something. But it has an article on uh, this, uh, this uh, church. It's called the All Souls Church in Mayberry, North Carolina. It's seated about 40 people, it says. It had a little choir loft, and it was always full on Sundays. Why? Because in that day, everybody went to church, whether you believed it or not, whether you participated, whether you slept through it and yawned through it, you know, just kind of glad-handed the preacher on the way out. That was what you did. Now, we're moving from 313 to 1960s America, and you can see the shift that's taken place and the slow, kind of sleepy Christianity that began to creep into our churches, into American culture. It became the socially acceptable thing to do. A lot of times it was the politically advantageous thing to do. If you're running for office or something, what did you do? You went to church because that was where you networked with all the good people who were going to you know, vote you into a position or something. Listen to this. In the past, a committed church member was said to attend three services per week. Today, do you know what research bears out that a committed church member attends? Three services per month. The Christian share of the American population declined almost 8 percentage points from 07 
2014, that means this. The number of American, Americans identifying as Christians is doing what? Noticeably declining. Let me put one more on your radar that you may not be familiar with. This one is another significant factor in the culture we live in today. And it's called the rise of the nuns. Now, I'm not talking about an uprising of nice little ladies in habits that live in convents. Uh, and it's not N-U-N-S. It's N-O-N-E-S. N-O- yes, I spelled it right. N-O-N-E-S. These are people who on a uh, survey, they will claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Um, the research tells us one in five Americans today identify themselves as nuns. These are people who may or may not believe in God, but they've essentially rejected the organized form of institution of religion itself. And here's the reality. The chances are that you have someone in your family or living right around you that you love dearly who is classified or will classify themselves as a nun. Now, it would be easy for us today when we hear what happened in the Roman Empire, when we watch Andrew Griffith's day, and we long, you know, have those great nostalgic feelings about what that would feel like and everything. But here's the reality. We don't live in that, that world any longer. We don't operate in that. We don't work in that culture. We don't minister in that culture. We don't raise our families in that culture. And it would be so easy for us to sit around in little circles, you know, and to wring our hands and to fret and to worry about what is going wrong in the world. But listen, I think we need to see it in a different light. Ed Stetzer says this, Christianity isn't collapsing. It's being clarified. Think about that. Christianity isn't collapsing. It is being clarified because nominal Christians are giving up the pretense of faith while convictional Christians remain committed. If you go back and you do a study of Christian history, go look at the time periods when the church was the most vibrant or the most effective, reaching the most people with the gospel. You will not see times that they were vibrant when the culture around them was just getting soft and accustomed to them being in the culture. It was when the cultural chips were down. So if the research is correct, or even if it's heading in the correct direction, what does that mean for how we ought to do ministry in 2018? How do we do ministry going forward? How should we do church? Let me ask you this question. How do we effectively reach a culture instead of shun it that is rapidly changing around us? Jesus did not shun uh, the lost and unchurched culture. Look at what he did. He, he saved his strongest words for people that were pretending to be religious, but in fact, there was no spiritual life within them. First Peter 2 gives us a solid starting point, not every answer for these questions, but a solid starting point for answering a question like this. First Peter chapter 2, well, let's look at verses 9 and 10. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter says, speaking to believing people who are living away from their homeland in exile, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter begins this section using four phrases from the Old Testament. Four phrases, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. And all of those phrases at one time in the Old Testament were used to attribute to Israel. But here, he applies them to the New Testament church. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the church has replaced Israel. But what it does mean is this. I believe that the scripture shows us the church is a continuation of the work that God began in Israel when he called Abraham and wanted his people to show the world what he was like. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. God began this redemptive work in this one man's life in his family. He goes to Abram. He wasn't Abraham yet. He goes to Abram and he calls him out of, the scripture tells us, a spiritual darkness. Abram's family was worshiping the lunar gods of that region at that time. And so the last family on earth who knew anything about God was spiritually going the other direction. You're talking about a really bad cultural situation for our faith. Things were going the wrong direction, spiritually speaking. And God renames him, and listen to what he gives him. He gives him a new identity. And he says, I'm going to bless your family. And Abram's looking around like, what family? I don't have any kids. You know, how are you going to bless me? And God gives him a promise of a son. And then he says this, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the nighttime sky. Look up there, Abram. Look up there. And Abram looks up, and he says, can you count those? Nah. He said, that's what your family is going to be like. And you know what I'm going to do through and with your family? I'm going to bring a blessing to the, all the families of the earth through your family. And so he begins by giving Abram a new identity. That's what these verses teach us, that God has given us in Christ a new identity. You are not who you used to be if you were in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. Do you know what the devil wants to do with the old you know what the devil wants to do? I mean, it's been canceled. It's been removed. It's been paid for on that cross. And the devil wants to take it like a heavy chain, the old, and hang it around your neck and remind you of who you are and what you've done and where you've been. You know what we're all too obliged to do sometimes? Stoop our neck down and let the devil put that on us. What does the scripture say to us? We are new creations, new creatures in Christ. We have a new identity. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belong to God. We've been renamed. We've got a couple of friends. You all probably know them, Scott and Christine. They're a missionary couple. They're actually getting ready to come home for some medical needs that Christine has surgery for. But they adopted two children. And a lot of people around them told them, you're crazy. What are you doing? Why are you flying to Bulgaria? And why are you flying to China to adopt these, these children? And it was very much a theological response and answer for them. And they would tell people, it's because we've been adopted into the family of God. We don't start out in the family of God. We start out as his enemies. It says Christ died for his enemies to reconcile us to himself. And so Scott and Christine made the decision to adopt these children. And they began with the legal proceedings. And they took all the airplane flights across the world. And they went through all of that. And finally that day came. That gotcha day when their children were given new last names. They even renamed the little boy with a new American name after a missionary, Adoniram Judson. They named him Judson Hand. His entire name changed. And you know what else changed because his name changed? His past was basically canceled. Never, never again to go back to the orphanage, always moving forward towards what his family was leading him to be and guiding him toward. That's what it is for us when we are adopted into the family of God. We sung, we, we, well, Tekoa sung that song for us this morning, the family of God, right? How do you get into the family of God? You are adopted by faith through Jesus Christ into that family. Spiritually speaking, 
Let the weight of that sit on you for a moment. You were, were, were in the orphanage, if you want to use that analogy. Forgotten, neglected, pushed aside. Those, that's too weak of an analogy. We were dead in our sin. And we were raised to life and we were adopted into a, a family to belong to God, it says, for his own possession. Imagine that you're a suffering Christian. You're one of these people that are hearing this letter of 1 Peter read to you and you're struggling and you're suffering and you're living away from your homeland and you're spiritually beat down by the culture around you. It was bad, bad, bad back then. You think it's bad now? Nero was taking Christians and tarring them, impaling them on poles and then lighting the city of Rome with their burning bodies while they burned alive. Things were really, really bad back then. Let's not buy into the fact that it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's just different. It's just different. Go study Christian history. But here, here what he tells them. He says, you have a new, new identity in Christ. You've been chosen, called, made holy. You belong to God. Let me ask you a question. Do those four phrases sound to you like God's trying to build this superficial, nominal, in name only brand of Christianity for you? No, it doesn't. No, God's in the process of saving and purifying a people for himself that stand out because we've been changed. Listen, it's not about where you were born. Let's say you were born in the Bible Belt, okay? You were born into a, what, what we call a Christian family. Listen, I love that phrase, but listen to me, it can also be terribly deceiving, tremendously deceiving because children can grow up thinking, oh, I was born in a Christian family and we always went to church and I'm good. And they never ever understand the depth and the fullness of what it means to be lost and apart from God. Yes, there are Christian families that are living out the faith in this culture because of a new identity, but we are not born into the family of God initially. This spiritual reality means we are set apart. But listen to me, please, church, hear me. It doesn't mean we have to be isolated. It doesn't mean we have to stiff arm the culture like an NFL player running for the end zone and saying, you know, stay away. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went to where the lost people and the hurting people and the unchurched people were. Listen, church, he intentionally engaged people around him for the purpose of telling them about his father and how good he is. So having a new identity doesn't mean we're isolated. But listen, it certainly does mean we ought to be different. Amen. The second truth we have is this. We have a new mission. Verse 9 and 10, we have a new mission. After Peter tells the believing exiles who they are, he reminds them of God's purpose in making them his own people. Verse 9, it says that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. In my Bible reading plan, I'm in, in 1 Samuel and I love this, this part in 1 Samuel where David talks about that the world may know that there is a God in Israel. Why did he want to see Goliath taken down? So that his name could go on a plaque? You know, so that he could receive a trophy or pats on the back or new money or, you know, no, 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 no. He wanted the whole world to know that the one true living God was the God of Israel. That was supposed to be Israel's calling card. They were supposed to live such drastically different lives among the pagans that the rest of the world could see how good God is. Is that not what we are called to do as a New Testament body of believers, as Christians? Yes. But you know what Israel began to do? They began to blend in instead of stand out. 
and then began to fall prey to all the cultural things that were pulling at them and tugging at them and saying, hey, just, just kind of neglect that little thing that God told you to do there in those commandments. Don't worry about that. Just set that aside. And then began to blend into the culture. And faithless Israel failed in their mission. The culture did not get to see the goodness of God around them. That same purpose that Israel was given is the same purpose that you have if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That we would joyfully proclaim the goodness of God. That we would make much of Him. When I was finishing up high school, um, I, I, my, my personality is such that I want to have a good time at everything that I'm doing. And so high school for me was um, all about you know, having friends and playing sports and, and hanging out on the weekends and you know, playing pickup basketball in the neighborhood with the guys. I, mean, I just want to do all those things that I wanted to have fun. And then I got to the end of high school and they started talking to me about this thing called college. And I began to sort of look around and, you know, what is college? Uh, nobody in my family had ever been to college before, uh, except for a, a cousin one time, and, and that didn't last for long. And so, uh, you know, I started panicking, thinking, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do about college. Well, I looked up, and my, my grades are very, very average on a really bright, sunny day. <laughs> and my SAT score was, uh, don't laugh, <laughs> my SAT score was nothing to write home about. And so I legitimately began to panic because all of my friends who've been working hard, they're getting ready to go off to all these institutions of higher learning, right, and have this amazing experience. And I'm realizing that I'm going to continue staying in the same bedroom and going, you know, to the tech school down the road. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's the direction that God called you toward. But I began to feel like, man, I'm going to get left behind. What's going to happen to me? And so I began to pray and, you know, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do here. And God opened up this door. My aunt was the secretary uh, for a, a relatively well-known guy named William Friday. I don't know if you've heard that name before, Bill Friday. Uh, he was the first president over the uh, North Carolina Univer University school system. Well, my aunt was his secretary. And uh, she went to him and said, listen, uh, my nephew could really use a little bit of help here, you know, getting into uh, this particular school. And it was a um, it was a school that was in the North Carolina University system. Well, the director of admissions at this school that I wanted to go to happened to be best friends with William Friday. And so when he picks up the phone and he makes a call on my behalf, my chances of getting into that school at that point begin to escalate, you know, just a little bit. And so that waiting list letter that I initially got, a month or two later, I, it comes back and it says, uh, hey, you've been accepted into uh, Appalachian State University. So he makes this recommendation for me and gets me in when I was not able to get myself in. Do you know how many times I have shared that story in the last 15, 18 years of my life? I have told and told and retold that story in different places because of what that guy did for me. I, I didn't even know what he looked like. I didn't know anything about the guy. I had to look his picture up actually to see what he looked like. But he literally changed my life because of what he did for me. My work wasn't enough to get me in. But guess what? His word was. All he had to do was say the word over me, so to speak. And I was in. And that's essentially what's happened to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gist of verse 9. That we've been rescued from darkness so that we can retell the story of the goodness of God. That's our new mission. Listen, something else here I think I don't want to spend too much time on, but let me point this out to you as well. I didn't spend my college career trying to make it up to Mr. Friday. No. 
I didn't spend my college career, and I made much better grades in my, in my undergrad and even better grades in my MDiv. I didn't spend those years after that trying to earn his approval, trying to make it up to him and say, Mr. Friday, I'm going to show you I'm going to be worth everything that you did for me. I already had his approval. Now, he didn't really know who I was, but he had already given me his approval, and I was in. The issue wasn't approval. The issue was this. I was working hard with a thankful attitude to make good on the incredible gift he had given to me. As believers, our faith in Jesus makes us pleasing to God. Some of you in this room need to hear that this morning. It says Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. But the inverse is true. With our faith in Jesus Christ, that's what makes us pleasing to God. It's not your good works. It's not your good name. It's not your career. It's not anything that you have done, but the faith you put in what Jesus has done for you makes you wonderfully approved and acceptable and pleasing to God. You say, where do you see that? Zephaniah 3.17, Old Testament. God says he rejoices with singing over his people. I remember, we've got five kids now, and and, uh, I remember when Ryan was born, our oldest, when he was first born, I think I've told you this before, but I got 30 minutes of sleep in the first 40 hours. I was so pumped about being a dad that I literally couldn't sleep. And here's what I did. I stood over top of his little carrier there in the hospital. They laid him in that thing. And I thought it was my responsibility to stand over him and to make sure he breathed, you know, or was breathing. And so I'm watching his little chest, you know. And if I had to go get coffee, I'd say, you know, Carrie, watch him, make sure he's okay, you know. I didn't understand God was the one that was making this thing Happen. I knew it here, but I didn't believe it here. But I began to do this thing, began to sing over him and speak words. I mean, sometimes I didn't even know what to say to him or over him, but I would just say, Jesus, 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 and just whisper the name of Jesus over him because I wanted to bless him and I wanted to do something for him. Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings and rejoices over us, not because we pass his test, but because Jesus passed the test for us and gave us the A+. We are to make much of him because he's done much for us. That's our mission. Christian rap artist Flame says this. Christianity is a missionary movement. It exists to move into people's lives and to introduce them to God himself, his love, his kindness. Listen, so if Christianity falls back and doesn't engage, then it is meaningless. It doesn't offer anything. Christianity did not come along to be an institution that sat stagnant. It came along to be a movement that invaded our lives through the Holy Spirit. And then everywhere we go, listen, this right here, in one sense, is the house of God. I get that. But you know what the biblical New Testament house of God is? Right here in your heart. The Holy Spirit dwells within you through faith in Christ. You take the church everywhere you go. You take the mission of God with you everywhere you go. Why? Because you've been given a new identity. You can't be on mission for God if you don't understand the change in who you are. I've got a great friend who preaches out at Friendship Baptist in Old Fort, Gail Wilson. Radical change in his life. Radical change in his life. If you get a ticket on the creek bank, <clears throat> Heath Yelton, uh, he will, pr- uh, just kidding. He will, Heath told me this. He will preach to you He will share the gospel with you while he's writing out a little pink ticket. And sometimes he won't even write the ticket out. He'll kind of just talk to you about where you've gone wrong. And he says, man, you know who I used to be? 
Oh, man, I tried to write the most tickets, and I tried to be the baddest guy in the game warden gig because I wanted everybody to look at me and talk about how I was. But he was radically changed, and he began to move out with this new mission because he understood who he was. You know what he talks about? Almost every time he preaches, he comes back to this. Your new identity. That is huge. That is huge. It's not who the TV tells you you are. It's not who Twitter tells you that you are. It's not who the culture around you drags you down and tells you who you are. It's who Christ tells you. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. You know what redeemed means? Traded in and given new value. You've been given new value. You've been ransomed. Do you know what the word ransomed means? It's this awesome Greek word, uh, lutron. I love it. I don't know why I remember that one from Greek class. The word means this. When you've been ransomed, someone paid a price for you to set you free. You were hostage to sin, to Satan. You say, why are you smiling when you tell me this? Because it's just awesome news, man. You've been paid a price, not just a monetary price, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ was paid for you to set you free. And what does Paul say in Galatians? Don't go back to living in bondage to slavery any longer. There's all different kinds of ways we can live to bondage and slavery to Satan. We've been called to be a part of this movement. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them to obey my commands. Acts 1.8, Jesus promises to give the Holy Spirit the power we need to do his work. Does that mean you have to sell everything you own and go overseas for the rest of your life? For most of us, probably no. But you know what that means? Tomorrow, or today even, when you step out of your car, when you step out of your office, when you step out of your home, when you step into your place of work, when you step into your neighborhood, when you step into your civic club, you are in your mission field. That's not just a trite little Christian phrase we put on the door and say, you are now entering the mission field. That's a biblical reality. You have a new identity and now you've been given a brand new mission. For far too long, the missionary label's been just for those who go overseas. You know what Christian maturity means? It means we follow Jesus out into the world. Let me give you a great example of something that's going on right now at our church that you may not know about. I'm going to brag on our meal team for a second here. Jane and all of her crew, Louise and those ladies, we have a lot of people across our church to prepare meals on Wednesday nights. We're getting ready to start preparing meals, I believe, once a month. Is that right, Diane, starting out? Wow, three weeks in each month. That's awesome. That's even three times better than what I was about to tell you. We're getting ready to prepare meals, extra food each week, 19 plates if I remember correctly, to deliver down to the men's shelter in our community. So we're not just eating amongst ourselves and enjoying that time around the table fellowshipping. You know what we're going to give you an opportunity to do? If you, the ladies that are preparing, well, it's the men too, they're preparing these meals, they're not going to be the ones to deliver them. If you say, man, I want an opportunity to invade the darkness. I want to reach some people who are lost and hurting. You know what you can do on Wednesdays? Sign up to help deliver some meals. And maybe it means you miss church. That's okay. Go to where the people are. Deliver that meal. Develop that relationship. Get to know their name. Find out their story and bless them and say, hey, I'll see you next week or I'll see you in a couple of weeks when I come back. I'm going to be praying for you. Can we pray together before I go? Awesome opportunity. So proud of our meal team for doing that.
We need to ask God, show me what it would look like to follow Jesus out into the world. Let me give you a few quick points of application. I know we're about out of time. And you may have some better ideas than these. But here's a few ways for us to be a chosen race and royal priesthood and holy nation in the changing culture we live in today. Number one, as a church, we need to equip, I'm saying we, not I, we need to equip our members here to have more than Bible knowledge. We need to equip each other to be missionaries in our hometown. That means we see our homes and neighborhoods, jobs, ball teams, civic clubs as mission fields where we can reach people with the love of Jesus Christ. That's not just in deed, that's also in word. Second, most of churches, most churches today, programming and ministries reflect a world of what we saw on the screen earlier. If we look at most churches across our nation, programming and ministries reflect the world of cultural Christianity. Here's what we say to the culture sometimes through our programming. Come to our place and be fed. You know what I love about what our meal team's doing? We're not saying come to our place and be fed. We're saying we're coming to your place. We're going to feed you. We're going to build relationships with you. If we want to grow and gain ground for the kingdom today, we need to think carefully and evaluate our ministries and our programs and ask this question. Is what we're doing presently helping us make disciples of those the nearest and our neighbors and the nations? We need to evaluate our programming as a church body. Always good to do that together. Third, I actually got this idea online, but we're doing this, I think Sarah was telling me about with our, with our budget now. It's called Zero-Based church calendar. You say, well, what is a zero-based church calendar? Here's what Tom Rainer says. Try this exercise. Start with a blank calendar. Now, fill in your calendar with only those activities that are really going to help move the church forward in its mission. Look at those activities that didn't make the cut. He says, if you do this every year, your leadership will become more and more aware of the precious resource of the time of its membership. All of us today live with a crunched time schedule and calendar, don't we? We live fast-paced, exactly what that pastor was saying in that clip. So we can do that. Number four, look, I'm looking at a great resource right now called Invite Your One. This is again from Tom Rainer from Lifeway. It's a church-wide strategy where every member prayerfully asks God to give them one person to invest in for a period of weeks and then invite them to church. And it's, it's kind of a high attendance day, but it's not meant to stop on that one Sunday. It's meant to show everyone that God has given us someone we can reach out to. We create a culture of evangelism and inviting. I want you to think about what this room right here would look like this morning. There's probably close to 200 people in here. Think about what this room would look like if every person, even children, went out and found one person that they invested in and they invited on a particular Sunday. Everybody came in here. Think, think of the, the issues we would have. I've said this before. Seating problems. I mean, where do we sit? Who's going to sit there? I guess we'll have to put a pew back down here over these red pieces of tape. You know, we're going to have parking issues. We're going to have people sitting all across the balcony. You know, where are all the kids going to sit if we follow a strategy of this sort? But where does it start? It starts with two things. It starts with two things. Remembering that we have a new identity in Christ. That changes who we are and how we live. And how we live means we have a new mission as a follower of Jesus Christ to proclaim the goodness of God, to tell his story. You have a new identity and you have a new mission. Let's live like that this week. Let's pray together.